Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I'm your host, Dr. Adriana Popescu, and I'm really excited today to be speaking with Veronica Gold. Veronica Gold is a co-founder, CEO, therapist, trainer, and consultant at Polaris Insight Center, a San Francisco-based clinic providing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. She's a sub-investigator and co-therapist in the MAPS clinical program from MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD. Veronica received her MA in clinical psychology from the Charles University in Prague and her MA in Integral Counseling Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. She's a certified EMDR therapist and training facilitator, an organic intelligence expert, and a realization process teacher. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. I can't wait to dive into all these interesting things that you've been doing with your work and this research you've been involved in that is so cutting edge and very exciting. Um, but first, I would love to hear a little bit about your story, um, how you came to do this work, what drew you to working um, with the modalities that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you've kind of read the long, long list of things I've done. And I come originally from the Czech Republic. And I studied psychology. I wanted to be a psychologist. And in my teenage years, I got introduced to work of Stanislav Grof, who was a psychiatrist from the Czech Republic, who then lived in the United States, actually here in the Bay Area. And he worked with non-ordinary states of consciousness and specifically with the research of LSD psychotherapy in the 50s and 60s and then moved to the United States, worked at the Maryland Research Institute. And when LSD became scheduled medicine, uh, he moved to SLN where he developed a method of holotropic breathwork together with his uh, first wife, Christina. And um, this holotropic breathwork has been a method that I was uh, introduced to in my teenage years. And it's a method of breathing, listening to music, and working somatically uh, with the intention of entering into non-ordinary states of consciousness where healing can happen. And so I was studying, I was a psychologist, and then I had a personal passion and interest in working with non-ordinary states of consciousness. And so, you know, fast forward, I, I moved to the United States in 2003, uh, really following Stan Groff, and uh, then I went to school here to the California Institute of Integral Studies and uh, became a psychotherapist. My uh, interest and specialization became in the treatment of trauma and anxiety disorders. And then about five years ago, I got the opportunity to become one of the therapists on the MDMA clinical trials for treatment of PTSD. 
And so that was kind of the first time and I was able to combine the two, you know, my passion and interest in working with these expanded states of consciousness and psychotherapy. And um, working, you know, we started on phase two, which was an open label study, which means that we knew that the, the, the participants we worked with received MDMA. And then we moved uh, to the phase three study, which is happening right now, which is a double blind placebo study. And, uh, you know, I wasn't surprised, but it was just wonderful to see the healing potential of working with the medicine. And we had a couple of colleagues who've been working with uh, the medicine ketamine. And so kind of inspired by their work, uh, I started to work at an infusion clinic where I was developing a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program to go along with the infusions because that's, you know, we will talk maybe a little bit more about how ketamine therapy looks like, but the, the you know, it's, it's oftentimes delivered through infusion. And from there, I saw some limitations of doing it in that type of setting uh, we got together with uh, some of my colleagues from MAPS and we started Polaris Insight Center uh, where I'm working now, where we provide ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in uh, a little bit different set and setting, very similar to the protocol that we use at MAPS and the protocol that Stan Groff worked with and developed. Oh, so amazing. I love Stan Groff. I too found him early on when I was just a freshman in college here in the States. And I was in a psychology class um, on drugs, psychology of drugs. <laughs> and I ended up doing a research paper on his work with LSD when he was using it in conjunction with psychotherapy to treat alcoholics, right? Oh, and oh, I just found it so fascinating. I could have never imagined that our field would embrace this or even be open to using these strategies again once the drugs were outlawed and it just became, you know, a non-starter, the idea that we can, you know, re there's been this resurgence in the research and people really discovering these therapeutic benefits is just amazing to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I came here in 2003, really, uh, probably a couple of months after my arrival, I met uh, Michael and Annie Midhofers on an event first in Graf. And, you know, Michael and Annie are uh, a couple who, a psychiatrist and, and, and a nurse practitioner who've developed the protocol for the MDMA clinical trial. And it was just in the time and they were starting to work with uh, participants. And so they were sharing about it um, as, you know, that's what they were doing, you know, over there in Charleston. And, it it you know seemed like dream was coming true that it was possible that that was happening and so um, for me it was really beautiful you know that it, almost thirteen years later to to get an invitation to be a therapist on the trial yeah yeah and I definitely want to find out more about where that's all at because you guys have come a long way in that study but first I want to ask you about. What is it about non-ordinary, like maybe even just describing what is a non-ordinary state of consciousness and what is it about that state that allows healing to occur? 
Mm -hmm. So these states, you know, they have a lot of different names that people use and that can be, you know, altered state of consciousness or non-ordinary state or expanded state of consciousness. And I like the, the, the expanded state or the non-ordinary state, you know, that, the, that, that kind of verbiage to use for those states. And those are states that have, um, you know, there is a shift in our perception, feelings, sensations. Um, there can be amplification of certain aspects of experience and as well dulling of other aspects of experience. And there are a variety of levels where people can enter. And so, you know, Stan Groff is, is, is one of many people, but he did like a great work of describing the different levels where we can enter in these states. And sometimes it's more like, a, like an expanded ability to look at biographical material, looking at our um, story, but maybe with more distance or with more empathy and compassion. But he as well described the perinatal time, the time you know from the conception to birth and really talked about it as such an important time in our life and oftentimes uh, time when certain behavioral patterns are imprinted. And that's another area where we can enter into the, in these states. And then there's, there, there are other levels of archetypal um, collective consciousness and mystical consciousness and this universal unity and oneness. So, you know, it can really feel like a spiritual or mystical experience. And, you know, th it, th those are states that we can enter as well without, you know, medicines, without drugs. Um, it can be through meditation, breathing, fasting, uh, through, you know, something like holotropic breathwork. But even in things like daydreaming or, you know, dreaming, lucid dreaming, um, you know, during sex. So there are times where we enter into these states um, and they've been known to facilitate healing and transformation for thousands of years. So, you know, if we look at history of, you know, many, many cultures, the healing, physical and psychological has been always connected with non-ordinary states of consciousness. And sometimes it would be the, the, the healer, the, the, the shaman, the medicine man, the medicine woman entering into the non-ordinary state of consciousness to facilitate healing for a person. Sometimes it would be the person who needed healing entering into those states. And sometimes it would be a whole group of people entering into that state for healing of, of, of a person. So those are states that are, you know, that it's not anything new. It's, it's very familiar and been used, you know, for millennia. And, you know, what, what, what is it about that that facilitates the healing? And, you know, so there is this new different perspective, this new different viewpoint that we can have. We have, you know, the, the, the things that we ordinarily believe can kind of fall apart and there is this new view of reality that we enter to. And, you know, just having those experiences can shift how we look at our psyche, how we look at mental health or mental illness and how we look at healing. Um, and two, two, you know, main principles that I often talk about and, you know, has been talked about is the, the, the inner healing intelligence, this innate capacity to heal that in these states, they, they, we get kind of access 
to our own ability to go where we need to go so that the healing and transformation can happen. So it's almost like a compass that can find where we are stuck. And, you know, like we say, the body has the ability to heal. So like, even if you have a flu, you know, maybe you get some medicine that can, you know, you know, put the fever down or, you know, does something that you don't feel the pain in your throat, but really it's your body that has to feel, uh, heal from within. And so in the same way, in the work with these medicines, we are trying to create this optimal set and setting so this innate healing can happen. So there is this trust in the inner healing intelligence and then healing through the experience that really we don't, um, you know, sometimes we do, we, we continue to process and we, you know, continue to understand, but sometimes the inside, the shift can happen through that non-ordinary state of consciousness. So those are some of the ways how, how these states can be helpful in, 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 in psychotherapy. Yeah, you know, my experience with all kinds of different altered states of consciousness generally has been that my ego, my mind in particular, um, is no longer the dominant. You know, we tend to be, especially here in the West, very much in our heads, thinking, analyzing, figuring things out. And I always would find that I have a broader awareness. It's not even about thinking anymore. It's about a deeper intuitive knowing. I feel like I'm more connected with my spirit, that part of me that's beyond ego, that maybe transcends time, space, lifetimes, realities, and that there's a freedom in that. You know, so often I feel like we can get ourselves boxed in with our minds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you talk about like the default mode network, that that's something what, um, is kind of to shut down and we have access to other parts of our mind, our parts of our being that are normally not as accessible or we learned to kind of close off from them. So it is this different uh, and, and expanded experience of ourselves and the world that can happen. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> so I want to hear more about um, if we're, you know, treating people who are coming to us as therapists with, let's say, depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, how can these medicines, and we really do consider them medicines, right? Um, How can we use these medicines to help those people heal from those conditions? What have been your experiences with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's nice you're using the word medicine because there's like a, you know, in Western psychiatry we have a medications and then a lot of the medications are really not aimed for healing they're you know manage used for managing or suppressing symptoms and these psychedelics have the possibility of actually healing and <clears throat> changing you know the, the person so that they no longer need treatment or medication and um we are in a really exciting time and there's a lot of research happening with, you know, MDMA, uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, ibogaine, and all those are kind of happening, you know, and more people are hearing about that. But, um, you know, the, the ones we are kind of working with the most and see the most about is, you know, MDMA and psilocybin and ketamine. And ketamine is... Uh, a medicine that is 
classified as dissociative anesthetic. So it's not a classical psychedelic, but it has very high psychedelic properties. And that is currently legally prescribable. And so that is a medicine we can work with. And you know, if we were in this ideal place where all these medicines were um, available, we I think would have better you know possibility of being able to see oh this person you know they're coming they're struggling with addiction and they're you know in a, in a pretty good health probably working with ibogaine would be something what would help them uh, or you know somebody's coming with PTSD and you know MDMA would be the way to to start or maybe working do a ketamine session and following with MDMA session so that we would have this freedom to create different treatments plans for people. But that's not where, where we are right now. And we, you know, how, how I think about it is that um, working with the medicine is, is, is a part of the treatment. You know, a lot of people hear about these medicines and think about it like a magic bullet. They will have this one experience or couple experiences and things will change. And, you know, sometimes something changes in major way, but oftentimes a lot of the change happens, you know, in the integration sessions, in the sessions that come after, in the long-term ongoing therapy and that people continue to unfold and understand and work through the things that kind of emerged in the experience. And so the way we work, we really, communicate and educate our clients about this and uh, help them understand that it is this ongoing process. So, um, you know, for example, with the MDMA clinical trials, we do, you know, three 90-minute preparation sessions before each experimental session. And then we do three 90-minute integration sessions. So there is you know, a lot of about nine hours of therapy that, that, that is done before and after, you know, the experience with the medicine. And then, you know, it continues to unfold. So like in the phase two study, um, they looked at the results in the end of the study, and then they looked at the results one year later, and they saw that people continue to improve you know, in that year when they no longer were receiving MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And that is that the MDMA allowed them to start look at things that they might not have been able to look at before or almost like unlocked certain parts of the trauma so that they continue to heal, you know, over time. And so in the same way, when we work with ketamine, we talk about, you know, that it's one of the things the, the person needs to look at. And if it, it's their lifestyle, it's, you know, exercise, it's diet, it's nutrition, it's community, um, you know, personal relationships, uh, oftentimes other medication and individual therapy, and then the ketamine, you know, so the, the, the medicine is one part. And, and if we only work with that and, and all these other things are forgotten, people will not have uh, such a, such a, such a good results as they could have. Right. And, and the protocols are really just being developed. Um, I have a friend who actually is also uh, one of the therapists on the project in South Carolina. And we actually met a doctor in Charleston who's doing ketamine um, infusions, ketamine, but it's not in the context of uh, psychotherapy. It's being delivered as um, go to the doctor's office, get hooked up to an IV, 
you're left in a room by yourself. And then, you know, when you're done, they make sure you're okay. And then you go, there's no psychotherapeutic piece where you're getting to process what happened. Cause maybe you're not going to be talking during your actual experience because you're in this altered state, but afterwards stuff comes up and people don't know what to do with it. And my friend had one of these infusions and had actually a really intense kind of dark shadow stuff come up for her. And I had to facilitate her afterwards in processing it, right? She needed that uh-huh. context. Wow, so, 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 so nice that she had you, that is really lucky. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so we definitely, you know, and that is kind of like what has happened because it, you know, ketamine has been um, approved in 1961 as an anesthetic. So it was, you know, for surgery. And, you know, they stopped using it widely because as people were coming out of the surgery, they would have what was called emergence phenomena that people would come and kind of report on these, you know, psychedelic journeys. But because they were not prepared for it, for a lot of people, it was quite distressing because they didn't understand what was happening. And so they, you know, they, they still use it because it's a very safe drug, but they use it oftentimes with other medicines that, um, you know, like a benzodiazepine that will cause then kind of a memory loss or amnesia on what happened. They still use it with kids, but otherwise it's, it's, it hasn't been used as much, but it became an interest to psychologists and uh, psychiatrists who were interested about, these phenom- about this phenomenology and these experiences that people were having. And, you know, in the last, you know, 10 plus years, there has been a lot of research done on the use of ketamine as a medicine to treat depression. And so that's, you know, and then there are a lot of infusion clinics that currently exist that, that are working kind of what you're describing, where they're trying to use, you know, these lower doses so that a lot of times people will go to more relaxed state, but not have material come up. Um, but, you know, many times they do. And the, 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 the paradigm of treatment there is really the medical medicinal paradigm that they want the, the medication effect, the antidepressant effect of the medicine. They're looking for symptom reduction. And, you know, there are these two other paradigms, which I think are, you know, quite different than what we work with is the psychological paradigm where the ketamine is the catalyst for the psychotherapy. And then the transpersonal shamanic paradigm where we're on purpose entering into the psychedelic space when high doses of this medicine are used and the, 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 we are inviting this non-ordinary state of consciousness for healing. And so there is this kind of a situation with the, the you know, that I believe that for the psychotherapy, the set and setting is really important. And you know, there are clients for whom it might be more uh, beneficial to do an infusion. And there are some things that we cannot, you know, deliver in, 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 in the intramuscular sessions or lozenges. And that is how our, our uh, physicians work. Um, you know, for example, if somebody has a active suicidal uh, ideation, oftentimes the, the infusion would be what would be the most helpful. Um, ketamine as well can be used for treatment of chronic pain. And to do that, you need to use a prolonged infusion, you know, from three to up to like 48 hours where they give these long infusions. And so that has to be done, you know, in a hospital setting. 
I still would love to see that hospitals and clinics who are using the IV infusion would um, educate themselves and understand about the possible effects of the ketamine and you know, encourage people to use soothing music, to use eye shades, so that they would minimize these distressing experiencing and having somebody there who, who really understands what it can bring up for people. And so that, you know, like in your friend's situation, that if, if you know, you were not there, that there would be a, a psychotherapist, you know, who would be working there or the nurses would be trained in understanding that things can come up for people and how to support them. Because right now in a lot of the infusion, when that comes up, they might give them, you know, benzodiazepine, like a medicine to shut it down. And that's, you know, the psych psychedelics are kind of bringing things up. They're bringing things up for healing. And so we don't want to come and shut it down. Right. Now there's another variation I want to talk about here, which is where um, there's a lot of need right now because um, since I think Michael Pollan's book about, you know, microdosing with LSD and Burning Man, and here we are in the Bay Area and you know, there's this kind of openness to, you know, experimenting with psychedelics. Well, what's happening is a lot of people are using these drugs recreationally, right, in a different set and setting, and they are having these profound experiences, sometimes upsetting, traumatic stuff is coming up for them, and they don't have, you know, in that party kind of recreational environment, they're not getting that support. So sometimes people are coming to therapists for that integration and processing of those experiences they've had with all kinds of drugs in other environments. Yeah, absolutely. And so there is a, um, you know, there have always been people who are using these medicines and they, you know, are a lot of people who continue to work with these medicines after they were scheduled and uh, people are more and more interested. And because there is not enough opportunity, people find different ways how they use it. And um, so I'm always thinking about harm reduction, you know, and uh, that these medicines can be really helpful and they have potential for, you know, consciousness exploration and that the way how we look at them now that like you have to have a mental health diagnosis to be able to receive the medicine. You know, I hope that one day that's not going to be the case, uh, but, you know, to what you're saying that there is, you know, when people know that they have um, challenges in their past, that it, it, it might be really helpful to, you know, optimize the sudden setting as much as they can. And there's a lot of information on how to do that. You know, if it's at least having a friend or having a therapist who is familiar with this type of work and is able to process with them after the sessions, what, what happened or after the experience. And so there is a, you know, psychedelic support network where there are, are lists of therapists who, you know, specifically work with people on integration of psychedelic experiences. Um, there are as well trainings, like a, we at Polaris Insight Center have a training for therapists for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, but not everyone who comes to our training wants to be a ketamine therapist, but some of them come because they work with clients who receive this treatment and so want to be familiar and understand what can come up in those, in, in those experiences. So that, um, you know, for, for therapists, I would suggest to just listen to the many, many podcasts that are available, like you're making this one available and there are many, many others and reading 
you know, books and articles about is because people are going to be coming into sessions with having these experiences and wanting to integrate that. And, um, and there are resources for people who, who, who take these medicines recreationally and um, really learning about, you know, the medicines they're using and what to expect. And, um, you know, and it's kind of like when we talk about a bad trip or bad experience that, um, you know, occasionally we, we could talk about it, but really most of the time in the context, how we work, we talk about challenging experience and that even the, 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 the most challenging experiences can have the most healing potential. You know, that when there is something difficult happening, we as therapists will provide the most support we can to support the person to move through that and understand that what is coming up is coming up for healing and that the psyche doesn't mostly give us something that's bigger than we can handle. You know, and of course, I'm saying mostly because there are always, you know, exceptions and, and you know, and they are powerful medicines. And so, um, you know, there are certain people like with, with you know, history of, of uh, uh, psychotic disorders or schizophrenia, that, that, that is kind of like a, like a red flag, you know, that there is some potential of bringing some of, some of those things up in the, in the medicine. Yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you about. You know, are there people or diagnoses or conditions, you know, for whom this type of therapy may not be maybe contraindicated for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so definitely we, we talk about it that, you know, there are diagnoses like schizophrenia, psychotic disorders. Um, if there is uncontrolled or medicated uh, bipolar disorder, you know, for example, for bipolar disorder, for the depressive side of it, the ketamine can be really helpful, but there needs to be, the person needs to be stabilized uh, so that it doesn't trigger the, the, the manic episode. Um, you know, active substance abuse disorders or, you know, misuse, there is, it's a question. Um, there is people with more of a, you know, stronger personality traits or personality disorders. You know, I would not say that it's not, it's, it's contraindicated, but sometimes there is more support needed. You know, so, so people who have like a big emotional liability, um, it might be helpful in the context of maybe like a outpatient treatment so that, that the person really can get the support because this medicine can make things more challenging temporarily. That, you know, that if, if we, you know, for example, in trauma, one of the most common ways how to deal with trauma is dissociation and disconnection. And that is something what's really helpful, what helps people to get through their life. But then this medicine, when they open it up and people are starting to look at what happened and heal, there can be time when it feels more challenging. And so that we want people to have enough support to move through that, you know, and I'm in the beginning, I'm saying like kind of cautiously, you know, when we talk about schizophrenia or psychotic uh, episodes, because some people are misdiagnosed, you know, and there are uh, people who have um, been diagnosed with schizophrenia and what they've been going through is something called spiritual emergence, spiritual emergency, where the psyche is trying to heal and reorganize, 
you know, and that's something again that, you know, Stan Groff talked about and, and, and many others. And there was um, in the Bay Area, there has been even spiritual emergence network. There is still few people, but it's been, you know, much bigger in the, in the 70s and 80s. And that, um, you know, so, so, so it is a question. So like I've had, uh, I worked with a couple clients who have been previously diagnosed with schizophrenia and, you know, when, and it, it, it has been several years. Uh, but when we really went deep into what was happening, it was clear that it, it, it was the, some of their trauma material that was moving through. And, you know, we decided that it, it felt comfortable with them to work with the medicine. And it actually was really helpful. You know, one of them said that he was able to actually make sense finally of what happened because when he was, was happening, he was having the episode of the spiritual emergence, everything was so fast and so confusing. And so being able to go to actually a similar place with the medicine, with the set and safe sentencing and support um, was something what facilitated almost like healing from the trauma of having that happen. But um, you know, it's, it's much more complicated to decide here. And so we, we want to be the most cautious and, and um, you know, so the, the people who've had those histories will most of the time, you know, not be recommended to, to use these medicines. Right. Right. Um, I would love to hear more about the MDMA project and how that's going and tell us more about why MDMA has been like, why is it so effective for dealing with trauma with um, PTSD back in the 80s before they made it illegal um, therapists were actually using it in couples therapy, you know, what is it about this drug that can, you know, that makes it so useful for addressing these kinds of issues. Yeah, and you know, there there has been just recently done one couple study that as well was done in in Charleston, and it was a phase two study. Uh, but it is it, you know again difficult that when we think from the FDA perspective, like a, or you know diagnoses, we cannot diagnose a couple. You know, so this study has been done that one of the cup, one of the people had PTSD and the other one didn't, but both of them received the medicine. So it was a really special study, um, and I still you know, believe that really it can be so effective for couples therapy and, and hopefully one day we'll be able to do that. Uh, but it is a beautiful medicine to work with trauma and PTSD. And MDMA has this effect of calming down the amygdala, the part of the brain that's responsible for the fight, flight and freeze response. And that those are this regulation, you know, they're, they're, uh, responses of the nervous system that in trauma can get dysregulated so that somebody might be in this state of always be feeling hypervigilant or being frozen, meaning being depressed, shut down. And it is a way of managing the trauma that has happened. And the medicine kind of calms down this part of the brain, this part of the nervous system. And people, the, 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 the participants are able to look at what happened, look at the traumatic events in a new way with the support of the medicine, with the support of the therapist, and are able to process the, the, the things that they've been through in a new way, you know, in having compassion towards themselves, towards the perpetrators or situations that happened 
and actually be able to go into place of healing and um you know and, and and again we trust this inner healing intelligence so we trust that whatever comes up it you know is what's supposed to come up and so sometimes somebody comes with you know index trauma why they're in the trial what they need to work on and it might not and in, in, in the trial now that people get three medicine sessions and sometimes it might not be until the third session that the trauma comes up that you know it might be like a like a severe accident that happened but then as we start working with the medicine there can be attachment trauma or things that happened in 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 their life you know early on and it's almost like the psyche is like bringing that up like this needs to heal before we can deal with this other trauma that 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 happened later so we are uh, you know working with the medicine with what's coming up and um and it's it's so you know for that reason it's a really beautiful way of of working and supporting people in in healing traumatic experiences so yeah what might a session so for people who maybe never can't quite imagine what a therapeutic you know session with this type of medicine would be you know what can you describe it to us like what does it look like what is the person is the person sitting there talking about their trauma what's happening in a typical and i'm sure there's not necessarily a typical session, but what often occurs in a session? Yeah, and so we, the first you know, phase is the preparation phase. So we meet with the person you know, for psychological testing and assessment, but then for three preparation sessions where we are getting to know them. So when we meet for the medicine session, uh, we know them really well. And I say we, because we work in a co-therapy teams. So their diets, you know, until now, it was mostly male and female diets, but right now they're as well, you know, different, uh, male, male, female, female, non-binary diets that work with people. And it's really helpful because MDMA session is about, you know, eight hours long. And so it's really helpful to have a co-therapist there. And it's beautiful to kind of work together as a team with the participant. Um, and also they come in, we talk about their intention for the session kind of review the, the way how we're going to work, you know, what we've talked about in the, 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 the preparation sessions. And, you know, there are kind of some safety procedures of like, you know, safely walking to the bathroom, go through the day. And people are lying down in the session. They're, you know, we kind of have a bed or sofa made into a bed. Uh, they wear eye shades. So the, 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 the eye shades kind of invite the internal focus. And then there is a music that we have. We have these special curated playlists that um, have a specific arc over the time of the eight hours. So there is kind of like this beginning and then like a more intense uh, music for processing, kind of heart opening music, and then again, calming down and kind of ending and settling. So there is this arc of the music that we have prepared and the participants invited to take the medicine and go inside and see what comes up, you know? And so the session is kind of a combination between inner and outer focus. So we invite the person to go in and notice what's coming up. And sometimes they come and share. And if they don't share for, you know, maybe like 40 minutes, we'll check in with them and see where they are at. And sometimes they talk for a bit. Sometimes they're like, you know, I'm doing well, I want to stay inside. And, you know, others feel like they want to share a lot, that they talk and that, you know, we might then try to invite them to go inside for a bit. You know, it's like, we talked about a lot. There's a lot that came up. Can you go inside for a little bit? And 
So we go this kind of back and forth with the internal external focus. And then we, you know, sometimes it looks very similar to talk therapy. Sometimes we do more of a intense processing. We as well work with the body, do somatic work. So, you know, trauma oftentimes trapped in the body, you know, and there, there is a kind of well-known book called Body Keeps the Score. So, it, you know, it is, it talks about like the, the trauma stored in our bodies and these medicines kind of start to open the possibility of releasing the trauma and that can look you know, like shaking or desire to push or some kind of pain or ache. And so we as well will work, you know, with the participant inviting them to maybe breathe into the area, connect with that, or we will work with them even somatically, you know, like pushing the, the, on the place or holding the place and, um, you know, really following the participant. And so the, when we talk about the protocols, it's something really interesting to think about psychedelic assisted therapy and protocols because protocol is always like okay this is prescribed what we're going to do and what's going to happen and the way how some of us look at psychedelics is that there is this inner healing intelligence and that it is an inner directed process and so i as a therapist i can hold okay there is this traumatic event but i don't know if that's going to come up and i'm not going to direct the session and i'm allowing for the, the, the patient or the participant to bring up what needs to come up and then I'm following that. So for the therapist, it's really to learn to kind of hold back and not direct the session because we might have a tendency to do that. And, you know, and, the, and there are some psychedelic assisted therapy schools and, and schools of thought that, you know, you do bring, you have, you know, you kind of use the medicine to, um, you know, facilitate certain type of therapy, but that's, that's, um, you know, just, just a little different philosophy of how that can look like. Mm -hmm. and uh, it, mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that, that, just the only thing I was going to say that it's kind of, the, and then, you know, we think about integration. So as the session ends, we might talk about what happened and, you know, then we meet with the participant the next morning and continue to, in, you know, talking about what happened. And it's kind of the beginning of the integration process. And the integration process can be for few sessions to, you know, months or even years after the medicine session. So that kind of, that is the arc of the, of the treatment. Yeah. And I love that, that it's just, it's so supported and it's not like come in one time and then we'll never see you again. I mean, I can't even imagine <laughs> doing this type of deep profound work in that kind of more medical kind of way, procedure kind of way. So I love that you guys have developed these, even though you're calling them protocols, I think they're incredibly client centered and really supportive of whatever it is that the client is going through and needing. So I'm curious to hear, you know, before we start to wrap it up, I would love to hear a little bit about the results. What have you guys found so far? You've had some pretty impressive results. Yeah, so, you know, with the MDMA, we are in the middle of the phase three trial, so we have to wait for those results. But in the phase two, there has been really a huge amount of, of, of relief of the PTSD, and it's around, you know, and I don't know the exact number, I think 73 or 76% of people haven't uh, qualified for the PTSD diagnosis, you know, after the, the trial. So that's huge. And because of that, 
um, FDA fast-tracked the research as, you know, gave it a designation of breakthrough therapy, which means that there hasn't been any type of therapy that's been researched, you know, uh, that has this type of success. You know, oftentimes the breakthrough therapy is given to, um, you know, medications for cancer and, and, and things, things like that. And so that's been a huge success. And then that, that's just uh, about three years ago. And then this in, in the beginning of this year, um, they as well approved a small uh, expanded access program, which means that people outside of the study can actually come and go through the treatment as, you know, just a, just a out of pocket kind of a payment. And um, so we're very excited about that that is happening and that it's becoming, you know, a little bit clo cl closer to becoming available and their clinical trials now starting in Europe. Um, so that's very exciting, you know, and, and, you know, with ketamine, we work with, you know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, addictions, OCD, and, uh, I think that you know people who really want to work on 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 what they are coming in for that the results we see are much better than for example just in the infusion clinic where as well the results that you know that are reported are really great you know so in the infusion clinics about 70% of people with depression no longer report depression or have significant decrease after four to six sessions and but they, you know, there is this protocol that people have to come back for booster sessions. But when we add the psychotherapy, we see that people don't have to come for the booster sessions at some point. You know, they might in the beginning, but then they get to a place where, you know, they actually feel better that something got resolved. And so that, that is, um, you know, really exciting. It's so exciting. And it's so um, encouraging for people who've received these diagnoses and been told, you're going to have this for the rest of your life. You will have this diagnosis, this condition, these symptoms for the rest of your life. And what we're finding with this work is that that's not necessarily true. People can heal from these conditions and no longer necessarily have these recurrent, you know, bouts or episodes. And that, to me, is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, thank you, Veronica, so much for being a guest on our show today. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they find you? Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Adriana. And so our website is uh, www.polarisinside.com. And people can as well email me if they have any questions. Veronica, spelled with K, at polarisinside.com. Uh, and we as well provide trainings for uh, psychotherapists. So if people are interested in training, uh, as well, all the information is on our website. And um, that's, that's the best way, I think. And um, as well, we have a newsletter. So if people go to our website, they can, they can sign up for our newsletter. Great. And we will add links to everything we talked about today on the show. We'll have them on the show notes. And I thank you all for tuning in today. Please be sure to like this podcast, comment, share it with others who might be interested. We want to try to get these tools in the hands of more people, providing education, providing information. So please do support us in that effort. 
I'm your host, Dr. Adriana Popescu. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Kaleidoscope of Possibilities. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.